It's hard to get people excited when the topic of the day is sin and misery. I'll just grant that.、Uh, I told you we would just to make things fit in the twelve or so weeks that we have. We'll take about five Lord's days per week, and so as you're reading ahead and doing your homework, you'll want to work through that. But this week is shorter because the Lord's days two, three, and four. Are the sin and misery section, which I think is just another really fascinating aspect of the organization of the Heidelberg Catechism. You have all of these questions and answers, all of this content. You have it divided up into the sections that we described last week, and the section that describes our condition before Christ, the sin and misery section, is three Lord's days. And you have basically all the rest for a lot of good news and a lot of what do we do in response. And、uh, I hope we find that encouraging. But today will not be so encouraging. We'll take the sin and misery that we are reminded of here, and we'll bring that into worship, and we'll be encouraged by what God does with us in worship. But we need to study sin and misery. We need to understand. Some answers to some really important questions, and we'll get to the Heidelberg questions here in just a second. But let me ask you another question: Those of us who grew up in the church, those of you who come to faith in adults, we we all know about the concept of being saved. People need to get saved. We want to see people get saved. We pray for people to be saved. We're thankful that we have been saved. But if somebody asked you, Saved from what? How do you answer that? What have you been saved from? Myself. <laughs> Myself.、Mm-hmm. Sin. sin. Well, God's wrath. God's wrath against sin、yeah. in myself. Right.、Yeah. yeah, the one word answer: death. The wages of sin. What's the one-word answer to what we need to be saved from? It's actually from whom do we need to be saved? God. We need to be saved from God, because God is ultimately our problem, because He's holy, perfect, and we are not. And when this very much not Perfect comes into the presence of a holy God. What happens? What should happen? Isaiah gives us a sense of it in Isaiah six, doesn't he? Isaiah is not like the most unholy guy in the world. Isaiah is a prophet of God. Isaiah is a follower of God. Isaiah is trying to live for God in the midst of a people who are not living for God before God, and Isaiah. Gets a he comes in the presence, even in just this vision, he comes in the presence of God Himself, and Isaiah says, "Wow, this is really great. I'm just I'm so happy to be here." Now, what does Isaiah say? Woe is, me. Woe is me! I am undone. Isaiah thinks he's about to die. <laughs> Isaiah's response to simply being a not holy person. In the presence of a holy God is 
oh, this is what it looks like right before death takes you. I can't, I can't see this. It's, it's, I can't be here. This is bad for me. And so we need to be saved from God. Now, yes, the reason we need to be saved from God is because of sin. Sin is what makes us guilty before God and what incurs his wrath. But we need to be saved from God. And the Heidelberg, in this section on sin and misery, delves into the questions around that. How did we get there? Why is that so? And how do we know that that is the case? How do we know that we have this holiness problem? And so that's where we start. Um, Savannah, can you do question three? Savannah, from whence do you know your misery? From the law of God. How do you know that God is holy and that you are not? Y'all ever read the law? You ever looked in scripture and seen the law? William, can you keep the law perfectly? I wait for mid donut bite. That is masterful skill right there. Give him a second to chew. No, for I'm prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. No, I cannot keep the law of God because I am prone by nature to hate God. And my neighbor. Now that might sound over the top to some of us. And I think a lot of folks who come to Christianity from the outside, or a lot of us who grew up in Christianity, where we grew up in the church or around the church, but we weren't really taught to think deeply from the scriptures. I think a lot of us come to lines like this and feel like this is over the top. I mean, come on, hate God, hate my neighbor. I mean, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But who is that bad? Good morning. Who is that bad? And what the Heidelberg Catechism is going to say is, you, you're that bad. I'm that bad. Your neighbor's that bad. We're all that bad. And in some ways, this section of the Catechism and this part of Christian doctrine is the whole ballgame. If you don't get this, if you don't buy into this, the depth of the fall, the it's theologians call the doctrine total depravity. Well, it it's, ties in perfectly with the with the sermon today, which was not on purpose by me, was on purpose by God. Um, if you don't get that, you kind of miss the whole thing. Because if you don't believe that you are prone by nature to hate God and your neighbor, if you don't believe that you cannot keep the law of God in yourself, then you're not dead in your sins and trespasses. And Jesus doesn't need to die on your behalf. You're just sick and need a little medicine, which is what a lot of people who've grown up in the church or are in Christian churches have been led to believe is that you're okay and God helps you in the parts that are not okay. And we're going to come to scripture and the Heidelberg Catechism is going to show us that is not the case at all. I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. 
how do we know that this is the problem? How do we know it's this bad? Well, the Heidelberg answer is the law of God. But that might not be where we start. Where we might start is with conscience, right? Because everybody has a conscience. And everybody knows when they've done something that even they believe is wrong. Everybody has that sense of that violates my internal moral standard. People draw their moral standards in different places and in different ways. But everybody has a limit. Even the people who say there's no such thing as good and evil. It's all just social constructs. That's all fine and well until you talk about torturing their children. Everybody has a limit, an internal moral compass. And that conscience does testify to us that we have violated that. And in creation, it was God's moral limit that was written on our hearts. And so most people's moral compasses have some correlation to true north. But over time, we tweak it, don't we? We, we start to devise our own moral compasses. We, we tell the conscience that God gave us to be quiet. That, oh, that's just burden that somebody else is placing on you. That's just guilt that other people are jealous of you or trying to keep you down. And so we start to make up our own moral compass. And even so, when we violate that, which we do, it's really hilarious how we can make up our own rules for right and wrong, and we won't even keep those all the time. We will fail even by our own pathetic standard. Well, I don't, I'll do this, but I won't ever do that. And, and then you do that. You think, huh, well, that was something. I mean, so conscience can't be enough because conscience in a fallen human becomes a guide to the moral compass that we've made up. And so it can give us a sense that we live in a moral universe, but it can't tell us what that morality is. It can't actually clearly define for us This is right and wrong. So if the question that we're trying to answer is, what does real holiness look like? To whom should we go? Who can answer that question? Only the one who is holy. Holiness is not um, some abstraction, a layer outside of God, where God is sitting in his study one day, uh, studiously smoking a pipe, and decides to write down these things on the list of what is good, and those things on the list of what is evil, and he declares it, let it be written, let it be done. That's not how good and evil get their definitions. How do they get their definition? From what God is. What he is, is holy. What he is, is good. If he thinks, says, or does it, or it's the result of his character, it is good. It is perfect. It is righteous. And so he's the only one who could tell us what good is. And therefore, he's the only one who can really tell us what bad is. So if we're in an existential moment and we're trying to figure out what is wrong with me in this universe, why is my conscience testifying against me? Why do I feel like something is not right? 
We can go to the one who is holy and he will tell us, well, here's what holiness is. How you doing? And that's what the Heidelberg says. How do you come to understand this sinful condition? How do you know your misery? And the Heidelberg says you know it from the law of God. Turn, uh, if you've got a Bible around, turn to Romans 7. Paul wrestles with this in his letter to the Romans. We're going to look at Romans 7, verse 7. Uh, Pam, will you read 7 through 13? So what's the argument that Paul's making here? Is it that ignorance of the law is an excuse? His life was better when he didn't know the law because he didn't actually sin, and then the law came and that made him a sinner? No, he says, actually, the the sin was already there. (laughs) It's the law that stirred up the sin. I was once alive. What does that mean? When he says, I was once alive, he means there's a time where I thought I was okay. There was a time where I look at my life and I thought, I'm all right before God. And we know in Paul's case, from his uh, uh, growth in Judaism and from his, his uh, legalism and, and sort of pharisaical approach to life, he thinks he has this covenantal relationship with God. And then he says, oh, no, then I was shown the law and sin that was already in me was shown to be sin. Sin was stirred up. I realized I'm not okay. I have a big problem before God. I'm a practitioner of religion. I'm a leader who's respected in the community. I'm an upstanding citizen. And I have a big problem because my sin has been shown to be sin. This can happen to covenant children. Some covenant children, some of you guys and gals, will be uh, baptized, and you'll grow up in the church, and you will never know a day. You won't be able to remember a single day where you didn't know the love of Jesus in your life. And that is a wonderful testimony. That is my favorite testimony to hear, that God's faithfulness played out that way. But some of us grow up in the church. And we're baptized and we worship and we participate in these things and people pray for us and we have all the benefits of being a church member. And because of those things, 
we think we're okay. We were once alive. We think, yeah, I'm all right. I asked a guy one time how he knew he was a Christian. And he couldn't even fathom the question. It made no sense to him whatsoever. And he said, my parents always took me to church. I was like, well, I like turtles. Those two could be completely unrelated. (laughs) Of course, parents taking our children to church is a good thing. It's how we, uh, it's how God most often works out that faith in their life. But it's also possible, even easy, to spend a lot of time in the church, to have the benefits of being a church membership, but to think to yourself, I'm alive. I'm fine. I'm okay. And then Paul says, the apostle, says, you know, that was me. That was me for a long time in my life, is that I was a good Jew, and I had a position of authority, and I knew a lot of things about the scriptures, and people respected me, and I was once alive. And how did Paul come to learn the misery of his condition? The law. He says it was the law. The law is not evil. The law is not sin. The law is good. But when the law did its work on me, when he actually learned what the law meant, not just here, but these two together, heart and mind together, when he actually learned what the law meant, he had his Isaiah 6 moment. And Paul says, woe to me, I am undone. This is terrible. So that was the, I mean, because being a Jew, he had lots of laws, right? So the difference was that it was just intellectual, and he really did not get the heart part of it. He just, it was like mechanical. The, he didn't get the head part right. I mean, that's the other funny thing is you can, if you, with the law of God, which has this unique component to it, if you don't get the heart part right, you're actually not getting the words part right either. So he thought he got the words part right on one level. When he goes to the heart part and God shows him that, he then goes back to the words part and says, oh, that's what Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus is saying, you've heard that it was said. And that means, hey, you've studied these words I'm about to say your whole lives. Your whole lives. You've been taught that, and then he'll say something. But I say to you, and what that means is, do you understand what that means? And then he tells them what that means. And those that were given ears to hear said, oh, no. Some of them who were already in faith said, yes, I do know what that means. But most of them within the crowds he's speaking to, and particularly the religious leaders that he's speaking to, say, no, 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 no. Well, we had it right the first time. Because if the law means what we think it means, I'm alive. If the law means what God says it means, well, now we're back to there is none righteous, no one, not even one. No one seeks God. There's actually a really interesting, a really good example of this uh, played, played, played out recently with Dennis Prager, who is a conservative commentator, who is a Jew, who has come out with some pretty uh, shocking comments from conservatives on uh, issues of uh, 
pornography. pornography. <laughs> and basically his view is, is that we don't have a Sermon on the Mount that says it matters what happens in your heart, that it really is just the actual act, physical act, and therefore it's totally fine and y'all should just kind of get over that because it's actually a helpful and useful thing because we don't have the Sermon on the Mount. Pretty shocking, but it's... It's really... I use this word carefully. It was really great to see someone be that honest and say the quiet part out loud, which is he said, what I like about Judaism is that it only controls my mechanical actions. It doesn't have to reach into my heart and change me. When the law means what he thinks it means, he's alive. When he really learns what the law is, sin is shown to be sin. Not just murder with your hands, anger in your heart. And do you know what happens when I find out for real that anger in my heart is real, real sin? Woe to me, I'm undone. I'm dead, Paul says. It killed me. It killed me. That's how we know our condition. So this gets into what we call, what's the purpose of the law? Well, there's three uses of the law, three purposes that God had for giving us his law, three uh, ways we can use God's law in our life that's valuable. And when I ask you to name them, the order you put them will tell me everything about which theologians are most important to you. That's a comment mostly for Jake. He's the only one that would get that joke. What are the three uses of the law? No, no, no. That's what is the law. What do you do with the law? What's the purpose? We're talking about second use of the law. Allowed to go that way? All right. Second use of the law. Show me my sin. And that's the use of the law we're focused on right here is I thought I was pretty good. And then the more of the law I see, I can't find anything I do that is righteous. Anything. (laughs) Everything is tainted. Everything is corrupt. Everything in my own strength, following my own conscience and North Star, is in disagreement with God's perfect, holy standard. Uh, just so we complete our list, what are the other two uses of the law? Show us good. How to live. What's the other use of the law? Uh, no, that's kind of in the second one. It's a good thought, but it's, it's, it's in that. It's restrained sin in society. It's just that, that thing I said at the beginning, that God made us in his image, and therefore the default position of our consciences does have some correspondence to the true north. We describe it as common grace a lot. When you go to the grocery store, every single time you go to the grocery store, there are unbelievers who hate God in that grocery store, right? Why don't you get beaten and robbed every single time you go to the grocery store? 
Isn't that what pagans should do? They should beat you and rob you. They should be like San Francisco, if you've seen those videos. Because the law is restraining sin. The, the, it, it's, God gave the law, made us in light of the law, and just by virtue of that, even for people who hate the law, deny the law, hate God, deny God, they're still being restrained by that. So we say um, the law is a traffic light. It restrains sin in society. Sorry, it's a stop sign. It restrains sin in society. It's been a long time since I was in school. It's a mirror. It shows us our sin. And it's a traffic light for the believer. It tells us when to stop and go. Make sense? When you, when you use the law here, in the first use of the law, you're referring to the law written on the heart, right? The fact that the law exists yeah. in all cases. Yes. So th- these require true understanding of the law. The fact that sin is restrained, they don't have to understand the law. It just happens because this is the world God has made. But the law is doing all three of those things all the time. It is restraining sin in society. It is showing those who've been given eyes to see their own sin. And it is guiding Christians in how to walk with God. What do you think made those what they are? Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, I'm very serious. That's what I mean by common grace. No matter how hard they fight to get away from it, they don't want to live in a world where everybody's okay with murder. Why? Because the law is written on their hearts. They don't want to live in a world where everybody just steals everything all the time. Why? Because the law is written in their hearts. They want what they want, and sometimes they want good things because the law is written on every human conscience at some level, no matter how perverted and corrupt they make it. Does that make sense? So all that's working out. Um, All right. So three uses of the law. There are also two articulations of the law. When the Bible, there's also three types of law, which we should probably briefly dive into so you know what I'm talking about. When we use the word law, We use the word law the way the Bible uses the word law. And the Bible uses the word law to describe three different things. I'm really struggling, y'all, with side conversations. I just need to give you a heads up. Uh, The one we've been talking about is the moral law. Moral law. We'll dig in more into that in a minute, how that's articulated. But there's another type of law in the Bible called the civil law. What's that? What's civil mean? Government. Government. So the civil law in the Bible is about government. It's about whose government? Israel's. Well, shouldn't that be the law for all governments? Nobody takes the theonomous bait, right? Civil law, Old Testament, is for Israel, a a actual people group nation that God formed as a government for his own purposes. We should not 
throw away that law lightly because it was designed by God and you need to look at it and see where there's the good and wise purpose in it. We also should not just photocopy it and apply it to another government three, four thousand years later in a completely different cultural context. But those laws, civil laws, don't apply to us, but we're kind of dumb if we just throw them away without even looking at them, because after all, that's a government that God formed, and God knows what he's doing, so we should look closely. There's a third type of law. What is that? Ceremonial. What are the ceremonial laws? Food. Food? You're allowed to eat this and not that. What else? Washings. You got to wash your hands this way at this time and don't wash these dishes with those dishes or bad things. What else? Sacrifices. Bring me a goat. Bring me seven goats. Bring me this kind of goat. I need a lamb. I need a grain offering up in here. I need sacrifices. Burial, which comes the cleanness laws, which is back to the diseases laws, which are about cleanness and purity. Ceremony are all these laws that God used not for civil government Israel, but for religious Israel to show them how he's to be worshipped, how they can be clean before God, how they live lives set apart from the nations. That was the instruction manual of the Old Testament church. That's what the ceremonial laws are. The instruction manual of the Old Testament church. So why we, I mean, we have Jesus, right? So we just get to ignore all that stuff ourselves. We don't get to just ignore it ourselves, except that Jesus said he came to fulfill the law. (laughs) And the New Testament unpacks for us. Peter says, this is why all foods are declared clean. The author of Hebrews says, this is why we don't need grain offerings and bulls and goats anymore because we have Jesus. And the New Testament spends a great deal of effort saying the the playbook for the Old Testament church is not the playbook for the New Testament church. It's the same people worshiping the same God, but Jesus changes everything. Everything. And so now we get the playbook for the New Testament church. And it's not out of harmony with the Old Testament church. They tell one beautiful narrative story, but Jesus changes everything. Were the Old Testament sacrifices bad? No, they were good. God commanded them. They were the playbook for the Old Testament church. Well, why aren't they good anymore? Because Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice. Those sacrifices had to be repeated. The priest had to go into the high place over and over and over and over again. And Jesus, once and for all, finished his work and sat down, having made atonement. All that's tied together. Food used to be these things make you unclean. New Testament says, yeah, that was a great allegory so that you could understand what it means to be clean versus unclean. And so you can understand how easily something becomes corrupt. You you turn the wrong way one degree under that Old Testament playbook and you are ceremonially unclean. You got real problems. And now that we've seen that lesson and we see that Christ makes us clean by what? By circumcision? No, by circumcision of the heart. By baptism? No, by baptism of the Spirit. By these washings? No, by the water and the Word. Christ makes us clean. And then the New Testament says, 
Well, yeah, it's, it's not what you put in your body that makes you corrupt. It's what comes out of it. Oh, now I get it. So one consistent playbook, but the ceremonial laws are not our playbook. They've given way because Christ changed everything. Thank you. Yeah. Head coverings in the New Testament are not connected to any sort of head covering in the Old Testament. The best short answer on that is that the way Paul talks about head coverings are the same way he talks about other cultural norms. What people do, not because God required them, but because they demonstrate culturally what God requires on the inside. So a close equivalent to this would be, oh, this is going to be dangerous. All right, you ready? I'm going to get in trouble for this one. How much do you dress up for church? And why do you dress up at all for church? Does God command any particular attire for worship? No. And anybody tells, who tells you that you are in sin because of what you wore to church has not read their Bible very carefully. Be kind to them, even though they're not being very kind to you. So does that close the issue? Well, no, because culturally, our culture, not Paul's, our culture, attire is an indicator of what you think about what you're doing. When I go stand before the judge in court, if I wear a suit... Or if I wear my gym shorts and t-shirt, don't you think the judge forms an opinion about my opinion of him or her? If I show up at your wedding in my boxers and my jammy shirt, aren't you going to form an opinion based on what I wear about how important I think your wedding is? If I come to your funeral wearing t-shirt, and fuzzy socks. Is that sinful? No. Will you form an opinion about what I believe about your funeral? Yes. Attire is a cultural indicator of what a person thinks about the event they're attending. You dress up for important meetings. You dress up for important dinners. You dress up for first dates. You dress up to appear before the judge. You dress up for weddings and funerals. That's a cultural symbol. You can say it's a great or a terrible cultural symbol. You can say I'm willing to accept the cultural symbol or reject it, but the culture doesn't care. The symbols are the symbols. And so what Paul's saying about head coverings, the way he writes it seems to fit very much in that context. And so the right question 2,000 years later that starts with, do I have to wear a head covering, is what did that symbolize culturally? And is my heart doing the thing that God commands of me? That's most important. And then usually, if it is, you'll also do the external cultural symbol that represents that. Um, posture in church when I'm at home, my kids will tell you, I'm sitting on the couch. Or the How do I sit at home? I got my feet up on things. I'm sprawled out. 
This is some fine living right here. That's how I sit at home. Do I sit that way in church, in worship? No. Why? Because it's, a, it's an external sign of what I think about what's happening. And what I think is happening is that I'm here to meet with God, the, the holy king of the universe. Does God command me to sit up straight? And it's a sin if I don't sit up straight. Nope. But if I really think I'm meeting with the holy God of the universe, I might decide to sit up straight, to pay attention, to engage, to wear something other than my jammies. <laughs> right? These are cultural indicators. So does that, that help? Uh, great question. I'm not to the moral law, Jake. I said ceremonial <laughs> about the subject that I was speaking. Jesus changed everything with regards to the ceremonial law. So there's continuity. Again, God hasn't changed. The playbook for God's people is a, is a, is a narrative, is a story. It's not just a point. And for one period of time, it has this playbook. For another period of time, it has this other playbook. They're always connected. They're always within the same covenant. But that's why the New Testament spends so much time saying those ceremonial laws are not for this time. So, okay, the Bible says civil laws, they may be of some use to us now, but we're not obligated to keep them because they were for Israel in a particular time in a particular place. And the Bible says ceremonial law. We do have some ceremonial law that we follow. Do not forsake the gathering, uh, <laughs> preaching of the word, singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, letting the word of God dwell richly with one another. We have a new <laughs> ceremonial law, but we don't have to keep the Old Testament one. And it tells us that explicitly. But what about the moral law? Well, where did I say the moral law came from? Did God design it? the way he designed the civil and the ceremonial? Where did I say the moral law comes from? It's what God is. So can the moral law change? No. God doesn't change. Exactly right, Pam. God doesn't change. So the moral law is the same in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. Do you know where else the moral law is the same? Before creation? And in the new heavens and the new earth, the moral law will not and cannot change. And so when Paul says it was the law that made him dead, that showed sin to be sin, he's talking about the moral law. He's talking about the law that is what God is and that will not change, that is inescapable no matter where you are in human history. So what is the moral law? When the Bible wants to sum up, summarize the moral law, it does it two different ways. They're not contradictory. They agree with each other quite nicely. But what are the two ways or places in the Bible where we come to understand the moral law? What's the one in the Old Testament? The Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. I say that with a lot of insecurity, but it's Deuteronomy 5, right? Yeah. Brain. Um, what's, 
the summary of the moral law in the New Testament. Did you hear what Daphne said? Love God with all that you are and all that you have. And love your neighbor the way you love yourself. And you say, well, that's way easier to keep than those Ten Commandments, right? Yowza. (laughs) What are the first four commandments telling you? What is God telling you when he says, don't have any other gods before me? Don't bring anything into the worship of me that is not me. (laughs) Don't use my name or my attributes casually or lightly. Don't use them for curses. Don't use them for trivialities. My name matters and you should use it that way. And I ordered your time. I gave you all the time that you have and I have ordered it in a way that is best for you. Follow that order. Work six days. And one day is not work. One day is worship. One day is handed back to me the same way tithes and offerings are handed back to me. It says, Lord, I will set aside from going my own way. I will follow your way. When God tells you those four things, what is he telling you? How to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's what he's telling you. That's how you do it. Love him and not everything else. Worship him the way he, the one being worshiped, says is right. Love and honor his name. And organize your time the way he organized your time. And then what's he telling you in 5 through 10? Five is a transitional one because if you actually honor your father and mother, it means your heart is submitted to real authority and that will include God's authority. So five actually plays both directions. But what is five through 10 telling us? How to love your neighbor as yourself. If I love my neighbor, I'm, gonna, I'm going to do these things. I'm not going to murder him. And then turns out I'm not even going to hate him. Oh. Right? The way I love my neighbor is to live within commandments 5 through 10. And so two articulations of the same commandment. All right. So what does that mean for the Heidelberg Catechism? We know that God's standard is perfect. We know that the moral law describes that perfection and reveals to us how to live within that perfection. We know we have these two articulations. Jesus, summary, and the Ten Commandments, summary. What does the Heidelberg Catechism do with those two summaries then? Which one does it bring up here at the very beginning? Question four, what does the law of God require of us? And what's the answer? The answer is Matthew 22, 37 through 40. It's Jesus. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Where are the Ten Commandments in the Heidelberg Catechism? Shouldn't they be here if we're talking about the moral law that shows us our sin? Right? It uses that one. Remember last week I said the Heidelberg Catechism puts the law in two places. It puts it here in the sin and misery section. 
and it uses what Jesus says in Matthew. Because I don't know why. But I know why I would have done it. When we read the Ten Commandments uh, as part of our Confession of Sin liturgy sometimes, it, it, it'll cut you to the quick if you really engage with those commandments and you think about the ways you've broken them. And if it doesn't, read the uh, Westminster Larger Catechism and then you'll find out you've sinned in ways that you didn't even contemplate. Uh, don't, don't read it. It's, I mean, read it, but make sure you're in a good place when you read it. But what really cuts really, really deep, really, really fast is to hear the words of the Lord Jesus, to love God with all you are and to love your neighbor as yourself. It sort of simplifies things in a way. The Ten Commandments help me unpack it. What does it look like? Where are the ways I fall short? But Jesus' summary really simplifies it. I don't have love. In my sin, I don't have love. I don't have love for God, and I don't have love for neighbor, and that's why I sin. And so the Heidelberg starts with that articulation. It starts with Jesus in the section on sin and misery, because when the law is functioning as a mirror, the way Paul describes in Romans 7, Jesus' summary does a really good job of that. (laughs) It is a powerful mirror. And if God will give us eyes to see when we look in it, we join Isaiah. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. It's it's powerful. And then the law has a third purpose. Show Christians how to live. So when we get later in the Heidelberg Catechism, when we get out of sin and misery and we pass through redemption, and now we're asking the question, well, if I've been redeemed, And it wasn't my own works. It was Jesus's. How in the world do I show my gratitude to God? And the Heidelberg says, commandment one, commandment two, commandment three, and works its way through. That's how you will show your gratitude to God. Both uh, of those uses of the law are going to be at work in the Heidelberg Catechism. Questions about that, and then I'll just real quickly cover Lord's Day 3. The superficial difference. So what's the difference between somebody who knows they're dead in their sins and trespasses, and so they turn to Jesus, and somebody who turns to Jesus because they think Jesus was a good moral teacher, they're not as good as Jesus, and they should spend their life being more like Jesus. That's what I heard, that, that distinction. So what, what does that look like? What practical difference does it make? On the surface... You would think that the person who understands total depravity would be this really sad, insecure, heavily burdened down worm who says, I know how wretched I am. I can never please God. I can never stand before him. I just just have to fall down and try to find ways to punish myself every single day. And the person, this again, this is superficial, 
the person who thinks they just need a little help from Jesus says, I'm pretty good and I can be a little better. And that person will maybe look more gracious. Ah, let's not talk about sin. Let's not, let's just talk about being better because nobody's perfect. Let's just talk about following your heart. Let's just talk about doing what's right. We're not going to define what's right. Do you guys know in reality, the experience of those two people is not that at all. The person who thinks they're going to blend their view of right with Jesus's, the person who thinks that they can do most things in their own strength and they need God for a few other little things, that person lives in exhaustion and insecurity. Because the Bible doesn't say you can do most things in your own strength. It doesn't say I'm the vine and you're the branches. You can do a whole lot of things apart from me. You can do nothing. And that person has to live with this tension of am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? And they can be a really good person. Some of the nicest people you know, deep down, deep, deep, deep down, wonder, am I doing enough? That's a horrible way to live. That's such a heavy load to bear. If you really understand total depravity, that in yourself you have nothing to offer, that in your strength your righteousness is filthy rags, and you say, all to Jesus, I surrender. I surrender all. I can't do any of it. Well, then you're walking in his strength and not your own. You can do good works. You can follow the law but not your burden, not your own strength, not your power, and therefore you don't get exhausted. If you are exhausted by the moral law of God, if you wake up in the morning or you have a tough situation and you think it is just going to be exhausting to do the right thing in this situation, you're not walking closely enough with Jesus in that situation. I have this all the time (laughs) and I have to repent of Here's yet another one where Paul's trying to do it in his own strength. Here's another one where I've decided that a little bit of help from Jesus will get me over the hump here. Jesus, could you just supplement just just a couple ounces of power here and then let my power do the rest of it? Jesus doesn't do that. Your power is a disaster. Your power is perfect weakness. (laughs) It's the tragic irony, and I don't mean to, I mean, I do mean to pick on it, but I'll try to be nice while I'm picking on it. But it's the tragic irony of the footsteps in the sand poster. Y'all know that poem where it has the picture of the beach and there's two sets of footsteps and then at one point there's only one and the person says, God, why in the tough times did you abandon me? And Jesus says, oh, no, I didn't abandon you. Those were the tough times. So that's when I was carrying you. Well, that's nice. So the person was walking in their own strength the rest of the time and only needed Jesus when things got tough. That's just not what the Bible teaches. I make everything worse. I make every time tough when I do it in my own strength. And so that's the, that's the experiential difference is exhaustion. And you control freak people like me, you know this is true. You know it's why we get exhausted and we have to, we have to stop and say, God, I'm trying to do it all. I'm saying, step back, God, I've got this. I'll put it in order. I'll be fine. Whether it's my own 
salvation or everybody else's lives. <laughs> we do the same thing. And so it's a great, uh, it'll fool you. The life apart from God looks free and easy. And it is burdensome and tiring and sad before its death. You agree that about, there's one other experiential way, which is the thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. Right? Oh. So they, they can also end up in being. Yeah. Yeah, because if you, this is what Matt, uh, God get, uh, God, Jesus, this is what Jesus gets into in the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about judging. And he says, you guys are such good judges when you get to judge by your own standards. When you get to make the ruler and you say, hey, look, I measure up perfectly and all these other people fall short. That's the kind of judging they were doing that Jesus condemns. That's the kind of judging where two men go to the temple to pray and one of them says, I thank you, God, that I am not like other men. <laughs> like that guy. <laughs> It, it is. And that's, we will always become self-righteous when we think we have righteousness of our own. And what total depravity teaches us is we don't have any righteousness of our own. In the fall, everything was corrupted. Everything. Not just, I sinned. I became corrupted and became a sinner. You know the difference between somebody who tells a lie and somebody who is a liar. Everybody tells a lie from time to time. Liars lie all the time. We didn't commit a sin. We are sinners. (laughs) The core of our being was sin. And that's what we'll get into in Psalm 14. And so question eight, Thomas, can you do eight? Are we so corrupt that we are incapable of doing any good and inclined to all evil? Yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. Yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. How can I become capable of doing something other than evil? Well, I need to become really well read. Well, I I need to get a Sunday school attendance pen. I need to be regenerated by the Spirit of God. Now, if I'm regenerated by the Spirit of God, I should become well-read in the Scriptures. And Sunday school can't help with that. But the order is everything. I have to be regenerated by the Spirit of God. Questions about that? That brings us to the end of Lord's Day 3. Oh, let me read one paragraph at the very end of this. This is from G.I. Williamson's uh, commentary on Heidelberg. It is for this reason that the Bible uses very strong words when it speaks of the remedy needed for our fallen condition. Jesus said, you must be born again. Paul had the same thing in mind when he said that God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up together with him. John, in the last book of the Bible, calls the same thing the first resurrection. The Bible uses such strong words because it wants us to be very clear about one thing. There is nothing in fallen man by nature that can bring about the change that is needed. If we are to be saved, it must be by God's almighty power and unmerited mercy. We've got to believe that or we cannot be saved. If we think we can do most of it and God's supplements, we are not relying on God. 
If we think we can do some of it, and God has to do a lot, we are not relying on God. It is all of God. And the Bible says it over and over and over again. And the way that you get that deep in your heart first will be the same way the Apostle Paul got it deep in his heart first. You will look at the law of God with fresh eyes and you would have thought you were alive and your sin will be shown to be sin and you'll say, woe is me, I'm undone. The law has killed me. And praise be to God, he shows us that, which then drives us to him for salvation, which is where the catechism goes next.